0: You are listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more.
1: We've got two readings today. The first one is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to Our second reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength.
0: Thank you very much, Matt, and hello, everyone. It's great to be back uh, for this next in our instalment, uh, looking at money and God. My name is Ralph. I'm one of the pastors here at Sea Church. Let us begin our time in this section of the Word uh, in prayer. Let us pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that your Word doesn't just deal with abstract matters. It doesn't just deal with the, the high things of who you are. Thank you you speak into our lives today in ways that speak into the things on our hearts, the things that cause us stress, the things that cause us anxiety. And we pray, Lord, as we reflect on this topic uh, today, would you speak and would we leave here changed people? Amen. Well, it's great to be continuing at uh, this series. Uh, looking at God and money. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we started off by looking at that topic, God and money. And we saw that money is a good thing. That's true. And perhaps it's something we we might need to be reminded of here. But we also saw that money is a dangerous thing as well. Do you remember that? We need to make sure that we make money our servant rather than our master. And we do that. We, we break the stranglehold of money over our lives by giving it away to, to someone who will be a good master of our hearts. That, that is what it means to, to store up treasure in heaven that lasts. That's what we saw last week. And there's an illustration I found really helpful to me in, in working through some of the implications of this in our lives. The illustration is all about a London banker. And he's sent out by his bank on succumbent to Paris. And his bank, they put him up in a flat And he's given a bumper extra big salary for suffering in in Paris. And he's told that he's allowed to wire money back to London each day. And he's told that if he wires the money back, it will be his on his return. There's only one catch. Anything he buys in Paris must stay in Paris when he returns to London. Now, how do you think that banker is going to live. How will he use his money? Well, I suspect that he will wire every last pound he can back to the UK. I suspect his apartment would end up being one of the sparsest decorated apartments in a whole of Paris full of cheap IKEA furniture because he will want to invest in his future, not his present. That's what we saw last week. We must master money, not let money master us. And that will mean investing our resources in what will last for the future. Today we're going to change tackle a little bit. So if last week we were thinking about the future and how we use our money with the future in mind, today we're going to think about the present And we're going to focus on anxiety about money. We're facing a financial squeeze, aren't we? As a nation, that's true. And for many of us as individuals, that's true. We're feeling the pinch. Can I say, I don't think the world has the answers we need right now for that financial pinch. For that anxiety. The world says, are you feeling anxious about money? Well, what you need to do is get more money. Get a pay rise. Get a better job. Then you'll have security. Then you won't need to be worried anymore. Now, I don't think that's true. And I don't think it's true because of three things that I've seen One of them is on a national level, one of them is on a global level, and the third is on a personal level. So firstly, on a national level. It is well documented that there has been an explosion of anxiety in the UK over the past couple of decades. It's shot up. And yet, at the exact same time, GDP, net wealth, has increased significantly. So there's certainly no direct link between more wealth and less anxiety. Secondly, second observation on a global level, I used to go out to Uganda each year to train pastors out there. And when I was there, I saw incredible, horrific poverty. Yet there was also something unmistakable amongst the poverty. There was a joy and a carefree abandon among the people which was in stark contrast to the wealthy Ugandans, who actually lived side by side with the poorest of the poor on the same streets. The difference was that those wealthy Ugandans, they lived behind huge cast iron gates, high walls with with glass encrusted into the top, 24-hour armed security patrolling their compounds for fear of being broken into. Now, I'm not extolling poverty. But it does give light to the claim that money and possessions bring peace of mind and security, doesn't it? Third observation, a personal one. In 2008, Anna and I made the decision that I should leave my well-paid job as a university lecturer and go and be a student all over again studying theology at Bible College. I went from being financially comfortable in a secure job, which was pretty much guaranteed. It's almost impossible to fire a lecturer, no matter how hard you try. And I went to a position where I was completely dependent on other people supporting me. And yet, and yet, when I look back, those were some of the most calm and contented and peaceful years of my life. So the world's answer to anxiety about money, just get more and then you won't worry, well, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. If anything, the evidence seems to suggest the exact opposite. The more money you have, the more anxious you become. So what does the Bible have to say on this issue? Well, two answers I want us to focus on this evening. And the first one is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Open that back up, would you with me? Uh, Just take a look. Uh, Did you notice the repetition? The thing Jesus says again and again and again? Do not worry, verse 25. Do not worry, verse 31. Do not worry, verse 34. And you read that and you think, "Well, well, isn't that a bit like... You seeing me when I've come in from a a run, all hot and sweaty, and saying, Ralph, Ralph, don't run out of breath. I mean, it's impossible, isn't it? It just happens if you go on a run, you're out of breath. is isn't worry inevitable in a broken, sinful world. Well, listen to the great reformer, John Calvin, speaking about this passage. He writes this. When God forbids them to be anxious, this is not to be taken literally as if he intended to take away from this. People all care. But immoderate care is condemned for two reasons. Either because in so doing, men tease and vex themselves to no purpose by carrying their anxiety farther than is proper or than their calling to mark. Or because they claim more for themselves than they have a right to do. And place such a reliance on their own industry that they neglect to call upon God. Do you see? Here we get to the heart of the issue. And the first answer to anxiety about money It is not that we shouldn't care or be concerned about our finances, worry, the anxiety that we're talking about, the thing that that Jesus actually forbids, is when we go beyond our responsibility. It's when we trust ourselves to sort things out, and Jesus says no. You must trust God, not yourselves. That's that's our first point today, trust God. Look at what Jesus says in verses 25 through to 32. He wants us to learn two things about God, and he teaches us these two things about God through the school of the natural sciences. First up, he wants us to see that God provides It's the doctrine of God's providence. He's providing. And he says to his hearers, look at the birds of the sky. They don't have plows. They don't have combine harvesters. They've got no barns to, to, to store their grain in. Yet, God, your heavenly Father, feeds them. Now, notice what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that the birds do nothing. If if a little sparrow sits upon the branch and decides to spend two weeks waiting for God to kind of lower some food down into its beak, you know what's going to happen to that bird? It's going to die of starvation and fall off its perch. The bird, if it wants to eat the food God has provided, it has to swoop down and to peck the food off the ground. But God does provide. And if he provides for the birds of the air, who have tiny brains and no technological innovations, how much more will he provide for us human beings who are so much more valuable than they are, having been made in God's own image? God's providence is not let go and let God. No, it's work hard and trust God. God will give us what we need for our lives. And we must make use of and enjoy what he provides through the means that he has given to us. What we mustn't do is worry, verse 27, because worry Worrying is to assume God's role for ourselves. Secondly, verses 28 to 32, Jesus wants us to see that God cares. He moves from the birds of the sky and he says, now look, look at the flowers of the field. They they can't weave or make clothes themselves. They, They don't have the money to buy Gucci or Prada and yet they're better dressed than the best-dressed man to have ever lived, King Solomon. And think of the grass. It's so insignificant that as as soon as it's been mowed, it just gets thrown onto the fire, but before that, it's clothed in dazzling green. And if God cares that much for the grass of the field... How much more does he care for you? Listen, worry is unbelief. Is that serious. When we worry about what we will eat or drink, when we worry about our bank balance, we're saying that we don't think God is going to provide. We're saying we don't think God cares. Now, I, I realize that we're a really mixed group here this afternoon. And there are people here today, there are people here today who've never had to worry about money. They grew up in a wealthy home. They had everything provided for by their parents. As soon as they left home, they walked into to a marvelous well-paying job. They'd never had to worry about money. But there are others here today who are really, really struggling. They were struggling last year, and and now with rising fuel prices, rising food prices, and and no rise in income or benefits, you're you're really concerned about how you're actually going to do this, how you're going to feed yourself, how you're going to clothe yourself in the year ahead. And my saying, don't worry, to you, well, it sounds really insensitive. Please hear me right. I am not saying that you should not be concerned. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that God will provide. And I am saying that God does care. And you know, one of the ways that he might provide for you, especially in the coming months, is through your brothers and sisters here at City Church. But we've got a hardship fund in place to help those who are struggling. If you think that might be useful for you, then please do come and speak to me afterwards or speak to Eric or Reuben, or Libby, all of whom would be really happy to chat with you about that hardship fund. But do trust God. Trust God to provide for you. Can I just say at this point, that what Jesus is saying here is the opposite of what churches that hold to the prosperity gospel teach. We we touched upon prosperity teaching last week. I, I briefly mentioned it. And you know, there are a number of prosperity teaching churches right here in Manchester. Many of you know that because many of you have been along to those churches and you have heard their teaching. And this is basically what they do. They highlight your needs. So it may be a material need. Have you lost your job? It may be an emotional need. Are you feeling sad? It may be a health need. Are you sick? Have you been diagnosed with cancer? They highlight your need, and then they make you feel anxious. They make you worry about. And then they say, Do you want to not to worry? Do you want to take control of your life? Do you want to be healthy? Do you want to be happy and prosperous? Well, give to God, by which they mean give to my own personal ministry, and he will give you health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, do you see what they're doing? It's subtle but it is the exact opposite of what Jesus says here. Jesus says, don't worry. Prosperity churches play on your fear and stimulate your anxiety. Jesus says, trust God. Prosperity churches say, trust yourself by buying God's favor. It's wicked. It's untrue. And it's unbelieving. We must trust God. He is in control. He is good. He will provide because He cares for you. But maybe you're sat here and you're thinking, well, (laughs) but what happens if He doesn't provide? I mean, what about the starving Christians in South Sudan right now? What about them? Ralph, how would you preach this passage if you were in South Sudan right now? It's a good question, isn't it? Shortly after World War II, a German theologian and pastor called Helmut Thielicke reflected on this very question. What does it mean for God to provide? And he knew what it was like living through the Allied invasion of Germany. He said, as he prepared to... To preach on this. We know the sight and the sound of homes collapsing in flames. Our own eyes have heard the sound of crashing, falling, and shrieking. Now, how can someone who has been through that be encouraged to look at the birds of the air and the flowers? Well, listen to Thelika. He writes, we must stop and listen when This man, whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like, points us to the carefreeness of the birds and the lilies, were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over this hour of the Sermon on the Mount? Do you see what Thielic is saying? When Jesus said, look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers of the field he already knew where he was heading. To a cross where he would be stripped naked, unclothed. To a cross where he would hunger and thirst. To a cross where his breath would literally run out. But he says, trust God. He cares for you. And he will provide what you need When you need it. My friends, one day, unless Jesus returns first, you will die. It's guaranteed. Perhaps we'll die in an accident. Perhaps we'll die of cancer. Perhaps we'll even die of starvation. But until that time, Jesus says, God will feed us. He will clothe us. He will give us everything that we need. And after that, he will give us everything we need for the world to come. His care never ends. That's why verse 33, we're to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It's so important what Jesus is saying here. Worry is unbelief. It's it's not trusting God. It's trying to be God in our lives. Jesus says, trust God, stop trying to be God, and follow his priority. Seek his kingdom, the the future that he is bringing about through his own life, death, and resurrection. And seek, seek God's righteousness. That means submitting to God's will in our lives, no matter what the future brings. Preacher Tim Keller has a great illustration here. It's about Queen Elizabeth the I, so, so not the recent queen, the one way back. Apparently once she asked a man to go on a sea voyage to the New World, and she knew that his skills would be really, really invaluable to the crew, and that the voyage was unlikely to succeed unless he was on the boat. Uh, But the man protested to Queen Elizabeth. He said, I've only just started a new business. The business is is small, it's struggling. If I go, the business is sure to fail and there'll be nothing for me when I come back. And the Queen looked at him and said, Sir, you mind my business and I'll mind your business. What an incredible deal that was. An all-powerful monarch minding his business for him. And we have exactly the same promise. God says, you mind my business, and I'll mind your business. So trust God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given you as well. That's the first point, trust God. Secondly, there's only two points today. Secondly, learn contentment. Uh, We saw this last week. We were looking at 1 Timothy chapter six. Do you remember what Paul said there? Verse six of chapter six, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Now now that was a lesson that Paul had learned himself. Uh, Turn with me to to Philippians chapter four. Now Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from the discomfort of a jail cell. And he says this, Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, this concept of contentment, it was very much in vogue at the time that Paul was writing in the first century. Uh, people have been discussing Contentment ever since the Greek philosopher Socrates started talking about it. And Stoic philosophers in the first century saw it as a great, great virtue to have contentment. But they took contentment to mean being independent and in need of no one. So contentment is to be independent and in need of no one. So so emotional detachment was the key for the Stoics. Stoics. Seneca, the famous first century uh, Stoic philosopher, wrote, The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Is that what Paul's talking about? Kind of Stoic resolve? Just gritting our teeth, detaching and, and keeping a big smile on our faces? Is that what it's about? Contentment? Well, no. No. But what's the alternative? I think all too often we have a kind of plucking the daisy approach to God. Do you you know how you do that? Does everyone used to do that or is it just me? you take out your daisy and you see it and it's got all those little petals and you take one petal off. He loves me, she loves me. Take the next one. She loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. I think we do that with God. You get a new job. God loves me. You get a bad annual review, he loves me not. You get a pay rise, he loves me. You get made redundant, he loves me not. You have enough money to to buy that incredible holiday, he loves me. You don't have enough money to buy a new car when it fails the MOT. He loves me not. Well, that's not contempt, is it? So so what is contentment? It's not emotional detachment, stoic resolve, nor is it being swayed about by kind of changing circumstances. What is it? Well, you know, the the Puritan preacher, Jeremiah Burroughs, he managed to write an entire book on this single passage. He he called it the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And, And listen to this definition that Burroughs gives of contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet inward quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Notice what Burroughs says here. Contentment is not emotional detachment. It involves delight. Did you see that? Delight. Nor is it independence from others. Contentment is all about how we relate to God. It doesn't shift and change with our changing circumstances. It's not, he loves me, he loves me not. No, it is in every condition. How do we get that? Well, look at verses 12 and 13 again. This tells us that contentment is not like a, a skill or a gift, it's not as if some are born content and others aren't. You know, it's not even something which is given to Christians. Like some Christians have the gift of contentment and other Christians don't. No, contentment, according to these verses, it is more like a muscle. And, and you know, muscles grow. Muscles are strengthened as they are used. As they're tested under pressure. And in the same way, verse 12, the secret of contentment needs to be learned in good times and bad, in plenty and in want. Do you know what that means? Your most difficult times are the times when God will be teaching you contentment. They are the spiritual gym for growing your contentment muscle. Now, so for some of you, that's going to be when you fall on hard times financially. But that will be painful, it will. It may even be embarrassing, but it will be a time that God uses in your life to grow your contentment, if you let it. For others of us, it's going to be when things are going really, really well, financially. Because when you get what you hope for, when you, when you hit that salary you've been aiming at, when you get that job you've always wanted, when you buy that home that you've dreamed of, it can be an incredibly disillusioning experience if you've been placing your hope and joy in it. I've been reading Prince Harry's book this week. Now, I know some of you, my wife included, is absolutely horrified that I'm reading it, But it is actually very, very interesting. And one of the things that really, really struck me is just how discontented Prince Harry is, despite having so much. You see, getting everything you want, getting everything you could possibly desire, is an incredibly disconcerting experience. Which is why the muscle of contentment must be exercised in both need and plenty. So how do we learn contentment? Well, well, look at verse 13. It's the key. And it is one of the most misused verses in the whole Bible. Paul says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, in the hand of prosperity preachers, this verse is dangerous. They say, don't you see? Give your money, empty your bank account into my own personal ministry fund and then God will give you whatever you need. He'll give you the skills, the acumen, the opportunity to get everything you want. They cultivate discontent. They make you look for contentment in stuff that you don't have in order that you might give to their ministry and then they leave you feeling more discontent than you felt before. But the meaning of this verse in context is the exact opposite. The all in verse 13 is contentment in context. And the way you get it is by realizing, whether you have little or plenty, that you've got everything in Christ. Last Sunday, I gave you three points of a 19th century preacher, John Wesley. Do you remember that? As he said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Well, today, let me give you another three points, this time from an 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards. This is a good sermon series. You're getting two for the price of one every sermon so far. Uh, Jonathan Edwards became very, very famous, but in what is believed to be his first sermon he ever preached publicly, he preached it on His title was Christian Happiness, by which he meant Christian contentment. And he said that there are three reasons why someone who knows Christ can be completely content. Firstly, because your bad things will turn out for good. Secondly, because your good things can never be taken away. And then thirdly, because the best things still lie in the future. Brothers and sisters, that, that is the secret of Christian contentment. That is what we need God to give us. The strength to grasp, the strength to believe, the the heart to embrace. But how do we know it's true? How do we know those three things are true? Well, we need to look to Christ. The one whose bad things turned out good. I mean, isn't that the heart of the gospel? The greatest act of injustice, the, the most horrific event ever to take place on planet earth, the son of God being nailed to the cross. It was turned into the greatest good the world has ever seen. The salvation of millions. The salvation of you and I, if we're trusting in Christ tonight. And because of Jesus, the good things, the very best things you have can never be taken away from you. I mean, think about it. Jesus, as he was led to the cross, he was stripped of everything. His comfort, his clothing, his sustenance, everything stripped away. The one thing, the one thing that was never taken away from him on the cross was us. And you know what that means? The treasure that we were talking about at the start today, the the real good things we have, the treasure in heaven, that can never be taken away from us. And finally, Jesus knew. He knew that the best things still lie in the future. Do you know how Jesus endured the pain and the agony of the cross? It wasn't because he was superhuman. He wasn't superhuman. Let me tell you how he endured it. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The best things still lie in the future. That is the key to Christian contentment. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've shown us that we can trust in our Heavenly Father. All his promises are true. They are all good. And they will all be fulfilled. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have shown us the path. You have shown us the secret of contentment. And Lord, would we learn it in good times and hard times, in plenty and in want, because we know, that all of our bad things will be turned to good, that all of our very best things can never be taken away, and that the very best things still lie in the future.